0: Well, being asked to preach to you is deeply humbling in two ways. Um, First, it's a sign of God's providence. Um, Last year on the first Sunday of June, uh, I led you in worship for the first time. This year, or year after, the second Sunday in June, I get to preach to you for the first time. So what's gonna happen the third Sunday of June next year, I don't know. But I am eager and anticipating to see that. But there's another reason it's humbling to preach to you today, and that has less to do with God's providence and more to do with uh, planning for preachers the schedule. After sending me the summer preaching schedule, I couldn't help but notice that Pastor Adam is preaching only one Sunday in this series on the Psalms. And that Sunday is next week after my first sermon. So I'm not sure if he's trying to tell me something, if he's trying to protect the church from possible damage and, uh, and anything that may or may not come out of my mouth. And I, I, I trust him, I don't blame him, better safe than sorry, he's the cleanup hitter. But enough about me and enough about this intro. Uh, let's dig into the word. We're in a summer sermon series in the Psalms. And uh, Pastor Adam did ask me to preach. He asked me to preach on the topic of worship. And uh, you give the worship leader the topic of worship, and and he is going to be excited. Uh, and I have a a word um, from scripture in Psalm 90 uh, that I want us to look at. Look at the topic of worship from this psalm. Learn from our big brother in the faith, Moses, who we're going to examine his life. Look at his life and and follow his example. And you know, oftentimes we struggle reading the Bible because we tend to feel disconnected from its message. Uh, one of the reasons for that is sometimes the people in the Bible, the characters, the stories, they give us these, these, uh, the, the impression that these people really were different than we are. Uh, I mean, they lived in distant times, distant past, distant settings, things foreign to us, and, and they're described in really unique ways. I mean, think of David the king, the great king of Israel. Um, raise your hand if you are royalty. No one in here is a king or a queen. Uh, David, you know, was a lion-killing, bear-wrestling giant slayer. Uh, I can't put that in my resume. Um, or Elijah, the great prophet of the Old Testament. Uh, this guy was was basically a superhero. He could pray down rain. He could raise people from the dead. Uh, he was just endowed with supernatural power by the work of the Spirit in his life and ministry. And, and Or even Samson, guys like Samson. I mean, I wonder if Marvel stole the idea of the Incredible Hulk just by reading uh, the account of First and Second Samuel, and looking at uh, Samson and the stories there. So uh, very different people than we are. And this morning, we're going to look at one of those characters, Moses. Uh, now, if you know anything about Moses, you'd certainly agree that he is very different than we are today. But he's not that different. If you consider some of his life experiences, you can see that there are, in fact, connections between his faith and how he lived out his faith and us and our faith and how we ought to live out our faith. So for example, Moses was adopted and he grew up in a sort of mixed family, a strange family setting where his mom and his older sister are kind of like his nannies, but he's raised in the Pharaoh's court. So anyone here raised by a single parent or a grandfather or a grandmother or or part of a mixed family, Moses committed a crime that caused them to run away and hide for years. Anyone here do something in the past that you're still running away from? Moses went from living as Egyptian royalty to working for his father-in-law in a farm. Anyone here flunk out of college? Maybe go broke, maybe get fired, maybe do something where you spoiled your life. Moses had serious family issues, y'all. He was a leader of the people of Israel, and there's an episode in the scriptures where his own brother and his own sister go up against him and lead the people of Israel in an insurrection against him. Can we all raise our hands and can affirm that we all have family drama, right? Amen? We all have family drama? So how different is Moses than we are? Not very. Not very. He's very much, he's lived a life filled with incredible, miraculous moments of God's power. But much of his life, we can see points of connection where his faith is seen in the day-to-day instances and interactions where we could learn something from his example, what he did and why he did it. And more than just an attempt at a creative sermon introduction, knowing details of Moses' story will help us better appreciate Moses' message. I think this is in part what the Apostle Paul has in mind when he writes the following in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. Making reference, by the way, to a particular event in the life of Moses. Paul writes, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. Moses is the great teacher of the Old Testament. He taught both in what he wrote and in how he lived. And so this morning, I wanted us to, to learn two lessons Moses teaches us about worship in Psalm 90. If you haven't opened your Bible there, go ahead and do so, Psalm 90. And what Moses teaches us about worship can be um, summarized in two ideas. True worship is being content in God's presence and provision and committed to God's people and plan. Let me turn on my timer, guys. VBS crew will appreciate me keeping this sermon short. There's a lot of stuff and a lot of things yet to be done. So let's go. First, true worship is being content in God's presence and provision. Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God, verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Psalm 90 is the oldest of the 150 psalms. We don't know exactly when Moses wrote the psalm, but scholars believe um, that Moses more than likely wrote this at the tail end of his life and ministry. And uh, more than likely, he's got three key events in mind as that serve as the backdrop for this psalm. Those events are the death of his sister Miriam, the death of his brother Aaron, and the great judgment that fell upon him. You'll recall the story of uh, Moses striking a rock with his staff to give a complaining people water, going against the pattern and instruction of the Lord, and Moses gets judged by God, and he is forbidden from entering into the Promised Land. Uh, You could read about these stories in Numbers chapter 20, Uh, That is a difficult chapter in the life of Moses as these events just happen one after another after another. And more than likely in this setting, after decades of having front row seat to innumerable displays of God's unbelievable power, shown both in salvation and in judgment, I would remind you that Moses was the man who was able to see firsthand God's power in saving a people, Israel, and in judging a people, Egypt. And Moses himself would have been a recipient of both salvation and of judgment. Forty years of ministry to the Lord, to these people, Moses has had a front seat to that. And close to the end of his life, Moses begins this psalm with the following word. He says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Moses' first thought was now, was not, wow, what a ride. It was not, man, hasn't my life been cool? His first thought didn't even reflect back on his great nemesis, Pharaoh. Man, that guy was a jerk. I can't believe he just wouldn't let us go. Moses thinks first and foremost of God. He says, Lord. He directs his attention and affection upward. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. This is modeled for us, by the way, all through the Psalms. All through the Psalms, we'll see this pattern, this instruction, this this example that we begin by looking up. Psalm chapter 8, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Psalm 27 verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Psalm 63 verse 1, O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. Psalm 103 verse 1, Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Psalm 139 verse 1, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. And on and on and on. The Psalms call us to lift our eyes to the heavens and acknowledge God as creator, as unique, as set apart, as unmatched, unparalleled, unequal, he's transcendent. He is above it all and outside it all. He is independent of it all. He is in one word the source of it all, the creator of it all. And, and Moses Moses knows this very well. But Mo- as As a matter of fact, he knows this better than anyone could. Better than any scientist, any any astronomer looking up into a telescope, into the night sky. Moses received from the Lord face-to-face details and instruction on how God made the heavens. Moses wrote the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And Moses would write down how God would do that. Moses was the person whom God spoke to face to face and told him how he fashioned all of existence. Look at verse 2. This is what he's thinking of more than likely in verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And here at the beginning of the psalm, Moses teaches us two key principles about the nature of God who God is, God is transcendent. He is everlasting to everlasting. There is nothing that God can be compared to because there is nothing like him. He is unique. He he is holy. He is set apart. He, He is outside of the fabric of time and space. But God is not distant. God is not aloof. God is not lost somewhere in the ether god is transcendent that's who he is but who he is to his people he is imminent he is near he is with us he says you are our dwelling place as transcendent and infinite as god is is as close and near he is to his people this is the first key lesson we get from this chapter that God is, and God is to his people. And these ideas captivate Moses. They, they invade his mind and focus his thoughts directly on God himself. Now, Moses, before he tells us anything about himself, before he introduces us to his story, to his achievements, to his success, before he describes the events that God used to lead him in in saving the people of Israel, his fears, his anxieties, before he tells us about about his regrets, things he could have done better, before he celebrates anything about himself, before he tells us his name, he introduces us to God. He blends his story in the background. He dissolves it and features God on the foreground and says, Lord, you are our dwelling place. Pastor A.W. Tozer once said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or impure as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. Typically when I preach, I insert application questions along the way. This keeps me in check, it keeps you awake. Uh, And so some application questions along the way. What comes to your mind when you think about God? Whose story is on the foreground of your mind when you think about your life? Do you identify yourself first through your story or through God's story? What do you know about God? And where did this knowledge come from? Do you know God personally. But worshiping God is more than just thinking the right things about God. Jesus tells us this clearly as he's speaking to the Pharisees and scribes in Matthew chapter 15. In the New Testament, the Pharisees and the scribes, this this were a group of religious leaders who were the professional God thinkers. You could not outthink thoughts about God and beat them. They were the pros at it. That They had established all sorts of religious rituals to try and describe and express who God was and what God wanted you to do. They were experts at the craft of thinking thoughts of God. But Jesus, speaking directly to them, says, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. It is possible to think the right thoughts of God, to be accurate in what we know about God, and even express what we know about God accurately. It is possible to have those things be a reality and worship God in vain. Theologian J.A. Packer sums this up nicely when he says, if our theology doesn't quicken the conscience and soften the heart, It actually hardens both. What Moses models for us about worship here is that worshiping God includes proper thoughts of God. We don't worship a God we imagine. We don't worship a God we want to imagine. We don't worship a God based on our creativity. We don't invent things about him. We worship him based on who he says he is as he has revealed himself in his word. We are limited in worshiping God by what he's described about himself and in the means he has asked his people to come and worship him. So this isn't a blank check to just think thoughts about God willy-nilly. However... Proper thoughts of God should lead to proper affections for him. in other words, the mind is involved in worship just as much as the heart is, not one more than the other, not sixty percent and forty percent. Look at how beautiful Moses models this for us. Again, look back at verse one we 're going to be in verse one a while. He says, "Lord, you have been our dwelling place. Moses's mission was pretty straightforward. And when God calls Moses to serve him and to do a work through him, this is the instruction God gives Moses in Exodus chapter three, verse seven. He says, then the Lord said to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites. It's a simple job. Hey, Moses, go into Egypt and take the people of Israel from where they are to where I want them to be. That's your job. Take them from Egypt and bring them to Canaan that's it. That's your call. That's what I'm asking you to do. Be the great teacher of these people and take them from Egypt to the promised land. Now, we all know the story. Things don't happen as quickly or as expectedly as we would have thought. Disobedience leads to God's judgment for an entire generation of Israelites, including Moses. These are people who their chief desire and identity was based on wanting to leave a place and go dwell in another place. They were slaves. These people were mistreated and abused. They had no identity other than the identity was enforced on them. And they wanted rescue. They needed help. God promises them to release them from their chains and bring him into a sense of paradise, a new land, a place for provision and prosperity and security and joy and happiness and finally be released to experience life and the God who has made them. But that very God who calls them to that is the God who prohibits that, who judges them because of their sin. People of, Israelite, people of Israel and Moses himself became wanderers 40 years of wandering in the desert, and they did not enter the Promised Land. And here, at the end of his time as a leader of Israel, after, again, wandering wanting a dwelling place for 40 years with no permanent house, no place to build a home, no place to put roots down, no place to raise a family, to kick up his feet and call it a day, walking every day knowing that this world has no home for them because the home that was promised to them is now prohibited to them. Walking every day, Moses himself, knowing he's the original dead man walking. Y'all know the story that part of the reason, or the main reason, I should say, that they're wandering for 40 years is God is wanting them to die. That's their judgment. You don't get to enter the place that I promised you. That land of dwelling, it's not for you. And in that setting, what do you hear from Moses? Do you hear despair? Do you hear confusion? Do you hear sadness? Do you hear complaints Do do, do you hear teeth grinding? What do you hear? He says, Lord, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. What you hear in Moses' prayer of praise is contentment. Contentment. A deep satisfaction in God himself. A satisfaction that clarifies where true joy and true fulfillment come from a lesson he could have only learned by being kept from the promised land. Moses' lesson for us here is simple but profound. The Creator is better than Canaan. The Creator is better than Canaan. Whatever pleasures, provisions, we can find in the promised land, we can find more fully in the promise maker. The most obvious need and desire Moses and the people of Israel had was to find a place to dwell. They were vagabonds. They were homeless. They floated around in the wilderness for 40 years. I moved to New Orleans last year and I'm told and I've seen that people here in North Carolina, they like to hike. People of Israel were the ultimate hikers. They hiked for 40 years and they never stopped. Every day for 40 years, that reality becomes all the more clear for Moses. I will not inherit the promised land, but I have an inheritance that's greater. God's great act of Moses to mercy is denying him the promised land. I'll say that again, God's great act of mercy to Moses is to deny him the promised land because by doing so, he allows Moses to find and feel and receive something better and deeper. And that is God himself because God does not just give things, God gives us himself. Psalm 16 verse 11 says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence... Not around you, not close to you, not through the things you give, but in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We love to quote Charles Spurgeon here because he's quotable. Um, just Spurgeon says things like, like I can't. So commenting on this, on this thought, Spurgeon says, Wanderers though we be in the howling wilderness, yet we find a home in thee. To the saints, the Lord Jehovah, the self-existent God, stands instead of mansion and roof tree. He shelters, comforts, protects, preserves, and cherishes all his own. Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the saints dwell in their God and have always done so in all ages. Not in the tabernacle or the temple do we dwell, but in God himself and this we have always done so since there was a church in the world application questions for you in your life what has been the relationship between getting what you want or losing what you have and contentment in god what is the relationship in your life between getting what you got getting what you want and losing what you have and contentment in god Have you noticed one rise when or fall? Your contentment in God rises when you get what you want and your contentment in God decreases when you lose what you have? Do your prayers include mostly petitions? Or do your prayers sound like praise? I'm not suggesting we ought not to pray for things. The Lord's Prayer instructs us to list things when we pray. But when you pray, have you noticed yourself asking God more than abiding in Him? Do you long to be with God as much as you long to receive His promises? I think of heaven here. I think of the idea that we have of heaven. And heaven affords us so many incredible things no more disease, no more destruction, no more despair, no more death. Can I get an amen? That's a great place to look forward to. But can I convince you that the great reward in heaven is God himself? Is to be with him? Is to see him face to face? Is to come back to the life giver? And these things are added extras that are fantastic. But we look forward to heaven because God is there. Not because heaven is what heaven is. So point one, true worship is being content in God's presence and provision. The second point, true worship is being committed to God's people and plans. We've looked at the first word, Lord. Moses begins his psalm by looking up. We looked at the phrase, you have been our dwelling place. Moses taught us a lesson on being content in God. Am I going to get through the whole psalm? I am clearly not going to get through the whole psalm. But I wanted us to notice something about how verse 1 is written. The words used to construct verse 1. We live in a time where pronouns are all the range. Observing people's chosen pronouns is massively important nowadays. And uh, in some parts of the world, not observing them can get you in trouble, get you thrown in jail. Maybe this is why Adam's preaching next week, because... Something like this could have happened. I'm not gonna get into any of that, I promise. Part of it is me checking to see if you're still awake. Have I lost you? Throw something in the room to get people's attention. But I did want to make make you aware of the pronoun Moses chooses here. That word, our. Now before any English major wants to come up and correct me and our is not technically a pronoun, that's fine. I checked a trusted and authoritative source on all things English and knowledge. I Googled it, and Google says, our is a pronoun. It's actually a first-person plural possessive pronoun. So that's a lot of words. That's right. So if you disagree, send Google an email. Um, But the point is not whether the word is a pronoun or not. The point is the nature of that word what that word does in that sentence and what that word signifies leads us to think the example that Moses sets by including that word in the first verse of his last psalm maybe last words to the people of Israel Moses isn't just writing about himself Lord you have been our dwelling place in all generations Moses isn't just writing for himself he is speaking on behalf of others And with others. Notice how prevalent this is in the entirety of Psalm 90. Look at verses seven through 12 in your Bibles and underline or circle how many times Moses uses the words our or we. I'm reading from the ESV. This is uh, Psalm 90, verse seven. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your, by your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom and so on and so forth. There is something deeply personal about this psalm, but the psalm is not personal. Moses is writing publicly corporately congregationally Moses is leading us in worship as worship ought to be experienced in community in the plurality of other believers reflecting the reality of God not just to the individual but to the collective Moses is committed to the idea of plurality in other words he models for us a key aspect of worship that is often neglected worship occurs in community. It doesn't only occur in community, but the consistent picture the Bible presents of worship is one of a people worshiping God together more than it is an individual worshiping God alone. I'll say that again, the consistent picture the Bible presents of worship is one of a people worshiping God together more than it is an individual worshiping God alone. This is why we come to church on Sundays. This is one of the many reasons we gather and we have to gather. Now, I want to clarify something. I'm not saying that if you, that when you pray in your prayer closet by yourself, when you read the Bible in your morning devotional by yourself, when you're listening to praise songs in the car, going to work by yourself, I'm not saying that's not worship. That's not what I am suggesting. What I am saying is that we need to make sure that our definition of worship is based on God's intended design more than our expected desires. God's definition for worship is based on his intended design more than our expected desires. God has designed things, worship in particular, to reflect his nature. You'll recall the teaching of scripture on the nature of God. God exists in a plurality of persons one God, three persons, existing in perfect fellowship, in perfect community. And in his image, God creates man. What's the problem? Man is alone. God tells us so. It is not good for man to be alone. So a helper is made for him. Why is a helper made for him? Because if if the one chief agent that's going to mirror him in the best possible way is going to be created by God to image him, to mirror him, then, then community must be their nature just like community is in God's nature. So Adam and Eve are created and they exist to bring God glory together as they fulfill God's purpose together. Y'all know the story, right? Three chapters in and things go haywire. But God has a plan. Genesis chapter 12, God calls a man Abraham and reveals to this man his plan to redeem humanity. And what's God's plan to redeem humanity? He promises to Abraham to bless all people after him by creating a people through him, the nation of Israel. You see this in Genesis chapter 12, verses one through two. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you, a person, a great nation, people, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing to all nations. This is God's plan, community, fellowship, plurality of people. And by the way, these people are who Moses has been ministering with for the past 40 years of his life. This nation who's going to be the nation that blesses the whole world is the people of Israel. They become the people of Israel. They are given the law and the prophets. And what do the prophets prophesy about? They prophesy about a coming Messiah who's going to come and do what? Establish a kingdom. What's a kingdom? A kingdom is a group of People all united under one God, but a plurality, a group of people worshiping one God. You flash forward to the New Testament. Jesus appears on the scene preaching the arrival of the kingdom of God. There's people language again and inviting all to participate and join the kingdom. Hey, come be part of this team. Mark chapter one, verse 15. Jesus says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The language of people, of corporate corporate uh, corporateness, made up a word. It, fi- it finds its final expression in the church. That's you and me. And God's design for worship constituted in the church. The apostle Peter summarizes this well in 1 Peter 2 9, where Peter says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you together corporately congregationally may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you collective plural out of darkness into his marvelous light from exodus chapter 19 verse 6 where god tells israel you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation To Revelation 1, verse 6, where we're told that Jesus has made us a kingdom and priest to God his Father, God has never wavered from his commitment to glorify himself through his people. True worship takes place when we delight in our God by committing ourselves to his people. Some application questions for you. What has been my attitude like towards gatherings with the people of God? Do I see God's people as a help or hindrance to worship? One more, if I never gathered with other believers, Sunday, life groups, Bible studies, how would my faith be affected? Write these down, take these with you, think through them, share them in your life group. But there's just one final bit before we, we wrap up. One interesting detail in this conversation about worship. The fact is, this passage we've been looking at is a psalm. We're studying the psalms for the entire summer. And I'm going to resist the urge to geek out on this, but, but stick with me because it's important, right? A whole summer studying the psalms, it's probably helpful for us to come and understand what they are. The English word psalm is a combination and meaning of two Greek words. Salmos, which means a song of praise, and selain, which means to pluck a stringed instrument. So essentially, what you have in your Bible, in the book of Psalms, when you turn there, you have 150 songs to be plucked on a stringed instrument. Guitar players and banjo players rejoice. These are songs. And what are songs meant to, songs meant to do? Yes, songs are meant to be sung. This book itself is absolutely fascinating. If you're an artsy type, there's a great deal of design and intentionality in how this book was compiled and designed, by the way. So for example, the book of Psalms is divided into five sections. There's five sections in the book of Psalm. Psalm 90 begins book four or or, or section four. Now why five sections? Is there another set of writings in the Hebrew mind, in the Hebrew tradition, in the scriptures that consist of five books? Yes, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of who? Of Moses. When the people of Israel thought of the Torah, the Torah means the teachings, they think of things that are meant to instruct us. And so by modeling themselves after the Torah, Five books, each book representing something about one of the books in the first five books of Moses. What do you think the Psalms are trying to communicate to us? They're not just songs. They're teachings. They're instructions. They're commands. These aren't just suggestions or or, or spiritual ideas that are curious and inventive. This is the very Word of God telling us this this is how faith is experienced. You don't know how to worship God appropriately. You do what God says. Where does God tell you how to worship him? All throughout the Bible. But the Psalms is a key section where we learn that. Hence our study. Now, more stuff on the Psalms. A large number of the Psalms contain musical instructions. It's not just the combination of these two words, you know, know, songs and plucked instruments. But the Psalms themselves tell you, like give you musical instructions. Look in your Bible, turn one page uh, to the left to Psalm 89. And you'll notice this heading. Now our Bibles have verse numbers and chapter titles. Those were an invention later on in the 14th or 15th century. Don't quite remember, church history professor, if you're watching, I'm sorry, I don't remember. But they're they're very helpful tools that help us kind of know where we are, right? It'd be really awkward and difficult to study the Bible together if you didn't have page numbers or verse numbers. Hey, turn to that book over there. That would not be helpful. You know, so it's helpful to say, turn to Psalm 90, and you guys turn to Psalm 90. So the numbers in your Bibles that represent verses and chapter titles, those were not part of the original manuscripts. They're written there to help guide us. But here's something interesting about the Psalms. The Psalms include headings that were written as part of the original manuscript that are part of the Psalm themselves, that are in fact, the word of God themselves. Psalm 89 says, a maskil. You see that in your Bible? What does that mean? We don't know. More than likely, this is referring to a genre of music. So it'd be like, hey, let's sing this uh, like a country song. Or let's sing this like a ballad. That's what that word means. It it calls a genre of music to attention. Look back one more psalm to Psalm 88. This one gives us more instructions. This one just tells us what it is. A song. By who? By the sons of Korah. Okay, we got, you know, CCLI uh, licenses uh, being registered here. Now get this. This is interesting. To the choir master... So they had worship leaders back then. Notice how this implies, by the way, that this is a song, a song to be sung in a gathering. You don't get a choir up and going to sing in private, right? You get a choir to sing a song so people can listen to that song, be sung to them, and be edified by it. And then it says, according to the Mahalat Leonat. What does that mean? We don't know. But probably, more than likely, this means the tune. So Alex, where were you? Alex Leahy, you're right there. My buddy Alex is a jazz pianist. He plays jazz music. If I were to come up to him and tell him, hey man, I wrote a song. Can we put it to um, the tune? What's a good jazz standard? Stardust. That, that's what this may mean. Just, just a tune. We've got two uh, band members um, who are part of the worship team, Daniel and Carly Threckle. They're, they're bluegrass players. They play bluegrass. And if I were to tell them, hey, uh, that, that tune, can we put this, this music or this text to that tune? And oh yeah, they'd be able to play a song that has a tune and you could just add text to it. That's what's going on here, more than likely. Now you can see where I'm going with this, right? I don't want to just teach you random nuggets on the, musical structure of the Psalms and musical ideas of the Psalm. We're talking about singing because Psalm 90 is a song. Moses isn't merely reflecting on God or thinking about God. This isn't just some random journal entry. This is a prayer of praise, a song of praise. Not only is Moses singing worship to the Lord, but his example, what he 's modeling for us, is that this thing of singing, this act of singing, is a corporate dynamic that he 's calling us all to participate and this shouldn 't be a surprise to all. We should not be surprised to find out that Moses liked to sing. if you think of the history of Moses, the life of Moses, the two great events of the life of Moses, the exit of Egypt and the entrance to Canaan. Salvation through the Red Sea and ushering the people to the borderlands into Canaan. Those are the bookends of the life of Moses. Guess what you find in both of those settings? A song. Exodus 14 recounts the miracle of the people of Israel crossing the Red Sea. What do you see the very next chapter describe? The people of Israel worshiping the song of Moses. Deuteronomy 32, the end of uh, Moses' life. The dude's old, the dude's gonna die. The dude is looking at the promised land. He's knowing that the people of Israel are going to cross and he has a few last choice words to tell them. But he doesn't punish them or he sings to them. Moses liked to sing. And you're probably asking yourself, big whoop. So what? I mean, that was Moses. I mean, people in the Old Testament were weird anyways, right? They did things we don't do. Like, what does that have to do with me? I'm glad you asked. Well, two things. First, as the Apostle Paul mentioned earlier, these things happened as an example for us. The implication is that the examples of faithfulness we find in the Bible describes our, uh, the, I'm sorry, the, exam, the examples of faithfulness the Bible describes are meant to not only inspire us, but instruct us. We see this all through the New Testament, that relationship between expectations, God's commands, and examples. So 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Philippians 3.17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Hebrews 6.12, so that you may not be sluggish, be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. The point is, we are faithful to God when we obey his command, but we are also faithful to God when we see God's command lived out faithfully in the lives of others, and we follow that example as well. And so Moses is lifting his life in front of us as an example. Hey, do as I do. I sing to the Lord, you should too. But the question remains, does the Bible come out and just command singing? Okay, Ronald, I get it. You made a good point. But does the Bible really just tell me straight up, sing, thou shalt singeth. D- does the Bible say that? Yes, it does. Turn to Psalm, uh, Psalm chapter 96, a few Psalms later, a few Psalms after Psalm 90. Psalm 96 says, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. In case you were wondering, there are more than 500 references to singing in the Bible and 50 direct commands. Now, I know this makes some of you feel discouraged, disappointed, scared even. 20 years of ministry, and I've had the same conversation with a whole host of different people throughout ministry. Ronald, I love when you guys sing. I love when so-and-so leads a song because they sound beautiful, but I don't really sing out because my voice is no good, right? Right? I've heard heard that. Be careful saying that around me. Because I'm going to probably, if I haven't already, responded with Psalm 95 verse 1. Psalm 95 verse 1 says, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. The Bible expects you to sing. It does not expect it to be pretty. But the expectation is there. Finally, guys, church, by the way, this is some insider baseball I'm the one texting the band right at about now to tell them to get ready. And since I'm the guy preaching, let me just go tell them, band, get ready. (laughs) But the role of singing as it relates to worship is absolutely essential to the life of a believer. This isn't just a story, just good example for us to model. This is essential for us as Christians to grow into likeness in Christ. Colossians 3.16 tells us, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How do I do that, Paul? How does the word of Christ, that is the word about Christ, that is the teachings of Christ and Christ Himself, how do I get that to dwell in me richly? How do I do that? Teaching and admonishing one another. Okay, that makes sense. So, preaching, teaching, you know, uh, um, mutual ministry. I got that. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. This is one flowing thought. Paul equates the work and the effect of singing to each other with teaching each other. They serve each other. This is how important singing is in the life of a gathered people. Now, why is that? Because singing helps us, unlike anything else, remember and rejoice Singing helps us remember the works of God and rejoice in the works of God. it's very important that we keep that second one active. We don't just want to remember what God has done. We don't just want to remember things. Next month, I'll be married 16 years. Be my anniversary, July 27th. And I can send my wife flowers. I could take her out to dinner. I could remember my anniversary, get her a gift, but if I don't rejoice in her while I'm at the dinner table, if I'm on my phone flipping through Instagram while we're having dinner at our anniversary, if I don't tell her I love her, how good is remembering their relationship? It's not very good. So you need both. You need to remember the works of God and rejoice in them with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Psalm 111.2 says, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all, there's remembering, who delight in them, there's rejoicing. Ephesians 5.18-19, and we'll close with this. Paul says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. I cannot understate how important it is for the life of another believer in this room for you to sing. I'll say that again. I cannot understate how important it is for the life of another believer for you to sing when we gather, for you to worship the Lord when we gather. Something happens in their heart that can't happen unless something else is happening in yours. This is the dynamic of our gatherings. Some of you come into these rooms on Sundays and you're filled with despair, disillusionment. You've got doubts. Life is hard. You can't speak to God. You don't know how. And then you look across the room and you see a brother and sister in Christ who walked through a season like yours. And you look at their face And you see their devotion and their delight in the Lord. That does something to your heart, doesn't it? It affects you. It grows faith. It helps put a song in your mouth when you can't get it out of your mouth. That's the effect of corporate singing. And that's why it's so important. Singing helps us surrender to the work of the Lord and to celebrate Him. Let me close with a quote by a German pastor who lived in Germany. (laughs) Funny how that works, right? Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a pastor during World War II. He was arrested by the Nazi secret service, held captive and executed days after the war had actually ended. This guy was like a real life 007 he participated in an uh, attempt to, um, um, to actually to kill Hitler. So there's some interesting things about his life, but he wrote a book called Life Together. Really helpful book. And there's a quote in here that could say this much better than I could. We'll read this quote, ask you a couple of application questions, and then we'll pray but he's talking about the, the importance of the relationship that we have to each other. He says, Christianity means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. No Christian community is more or less than this. Whether it be a brief single encounter or the daily fellowship of years, Christian community is only this. We belong to one another only through and in Jesus Christ. But what does this mean? It means, first, that a Christian needs others because of Jesus Christ. How does this happen? In this way, God has placed his word into the mouth of men in order that he may be communicated to other men. God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother, in the mouth of a man. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself without belying the truth. He needs his brother man as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ, The Christ in his heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's sure. Some application questions for you. How much do you enjoy singing to the Lord when you gather with his saints? And if you don't, what is keeping you from singing freely in the gathering? Why are there limitations in your heart and hindrances to your worship when we gather? And then second, are you aware of how much the faith of other believers is encouraged by the sound of your voice? Are you aware of how much the faith of other believers is encouraged by the sound of your voice? Let's pray. Father, we delight in your plans and we turn to you even now, Lord, recognizing you for who you are, acknowledging your greatness, recipients of your grace, Lord, and living in the goodness of your plan for our lives. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of Moses. Lord, we thank you for gatherings like we have, Father, the settings that you have afforded us where we can sing freely and joyfully. Lord, move us. Move in our hearts as, your mind, as our minds are filled with your word. May our hearts explode in affection and delight of what the Savior has done. Father, we pray now for the remainder of this series, Lord. That as we begin studying your word, Father, each one of these psalms would speak to specific areas of our life and our worship. Lord, and we now we thank you for Christ. For he is the one that has made all of this possible, Lord. You don't accept our song because we are good singers. Lord, you accept our song and our worship because Christ has made our worship acceptable. It is through him, O oh Lord, that we have access to come before you and receive life. Now, Father, as we sing, may you fill our hearts and our minds with the love of Christ. For him, Your glory and our good, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.